I was uh, reading this week that in 1968, some of you know this story, the country of uh, Tanzania selected John Stephen Akwari to represent it in the Mexican City Olympics. Uh, it was a really hot afternoon the day Akwari and the other competitors uh, competed for the gold medal. The race was grueling, and because of the intense heat, many suffered heat stroke, um, cramps, and fatigue. And one by one, the, the runners started to drop by the wayside. And out of the 74 participants, 17 did not make it to the finish line. And one of those could have been Akwari, but he persevered. He had determination to finish. It was actually during that race that Akwari uh, suffered a devastating fall. He sustained severe injuries to his legs, his shoulder, his head, and he dislocated his knee at the joint. He had every reason to give up. Spectators along the way were concerned about him and they urged him to stop running and to immediately seek medical attention because he needed it. But Aquari continued on. He picked himself up, nursed his dislocated knee, and bandaged his wounds. It hurt to run, but he ran anyway. It was dark when Aquari finally crossed the finish line. He was the last runner across the finish line. The award ceremony had been over for some time, and only a few hundred people were left to witness one of the most glorious moments in Olympic history. Limping through the gate came a quarry with his leg wrapped in a bloody bandage. Those present began to cheer as the courageous man completed the final lap of the race. Later, a reporter went to him and asked the question that was on everyone's mind. Why did you continue the race after you were so badly injured? He replied, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to begin a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. When he was interviewed 52 years later, he said, I never thought one moment about stopping. My only objective was to finish the race. Tonight, we're going to look at a scripture that likens the Christian walk to a race. And like a quarry, we are sent by God not just to start the race, but to finish it well. There are bound to be falls and wounds are inevitable, but we must uh, decide and, and resolve in our minds that we will finish the race well no matter what. No matter what our opponent or the enemy throws at us, no matter what obstacles try to trip us up, uh, we can never ever entertain the idea of bowing out early. Our only objective is to finish the race set before us. If you have your Bibles tonight, you can open them to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'd like to read to you verses 24 through 27, but would you pray with me first? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your presence here among us. You are the living word. And I pray, Father God, that even as your word goes forth in this place, that, that you would bring revelation, that you would bring understanding and insight and wisdom. Lord, help us to make immediate application to our life, no matter how I present it. Lord, I'm asking you for mercy, that, that you fill my mouth with your words and that I would only say what the Father tells me to say. But Lord, let me say it with authority and with great power. And, and Lord, I pray that it would pierce hearts and minds and that it would bring radical change in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one? receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, 
I run not, I run thus not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. For those of you who have not been with us before, we're in the middle of a sermon series uh, entitled The Secrets to Living a Victorious Christian Life. In the series, we're discussing obstacles and hindrances that keep us from walking in victory, the things that trip us up in the race, if you will. And this might surprise you, uh, but, but I would say that the biggest issue that tends to trip us up is not the devil, but rather it's the flesh, it's self. And in order to run the race successfully, we must learn how to deal with the flesh, how to deal with self. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come up, come after me, he, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's interesting to me that that word deny is in the aorist imperative tense. It, 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 this means it's not an optional thing, it, it, but a clear command to do it. And, and with the aorist tense, it means do it and do it now. Do not delay uh, dying to yourself. Don't delay following me and my ways. It's in the middle voice, which means it emphasizes that it's our personal responsibility to initiate this action. I must initiate dying to self. The Lord is waiting for that. He's, he's not, uh, he, I have to choose to deny myself. I have to choose to die. Jesus is not going to force us to die or force us to deal with the flesh in our life. He wants it to be a decision of our will to follow him, to follow his ways. And one of the keys to living a victorious Christian life, I believe it is one of the biggest keys to living a victorious Christian life, is learning to deal with the flesh and learning to die to self. <clears throat> to take up our cross and to follow him. The cross, you know, is a place of death. We have to learn to die to ourselves. We have to learn to die to unhealthy emotions. We have to learn to die to selfishness. We have to learn to die to fleshly desires and, and to getting our own way. Jesus himself said it's required to be considered one of his followers. The passage we read tonight is about running a race and fighting a fight. And you might ask yourself, how did I jump to dying to self? And it's because you'll see as we go through this passage that both running a race and fighting a fight requires rigid, strict discipline. They require keeping self down and not letting flesh rule in your life. Both running a race and fighting a fight requires intense training and agonizing struggle. <laughs> so does dying to self. And that's the reason Paul is using these athletic metaphors to illustrate dying to self and the struggle that that can be. The, the athletic metaphors that he's using in his letter to the Corinthians were taken from the Greco-Roman uh, Isthmian games. They were held in Corinth. They were held in the place uh, the people were living to whom he was writing. So his readers would have been familiar with the picture he was painting for them. You see, like today, athletic events were important at that time. And there were two major athletic uh, games at, uh, during that time. One, of course, was the Olympics. And, and you know that. That's still an important athletic event today. And they were held like they are today every four years in Olympia, Greece. The Corinthians would have been familiar with that. It would have been a big deal to them. But what would be even a bigger deal were the Isthmian games. They, they were held in Corinth every other year. And so the people Paul was writing to had, in, um, had, had, had firsthand knowledge of what it took for those ath athletes to train and to prepare for that race. And so they were familiar with the illustrations that Paul uh, would have been using. 
Paul uh, was, uh, was talking to them about the Christian walk, and, and, and these people would have known that the games that were being played in their town, the, athlete, the athletes competing were required to take an oath. Before they even started the games, they were required to take an oath, agreeing to, to abide by the rules of the game. Oh, what does that sound like? To take an oath, agreeing to abide by the rules of the game. If they broke the oath or didn't compete according to the rules, they were disqualified from the games. The athletes would compete in foot races and wrestling and boxing and discus throwing and javelin throwing and the long jump and chariot racing. And in order to compete in the games, the competitors submitted themselves to, get this, grueling training strict discipline, and they were driven by a fierce determination to win. Commentators tell us that they would have practiced deliberate abstinence from anything that would hinder them in the race or interfere with the way they ran. And because the Corinthians hosted these games, it would have been impossible for Paul's readers to miss the message behind the metaphor and the correlations that he was making. They would have been aware uh, and have witnessed the strict, rigorous training, the, the discipline required by those participating in the, in the games. Paul's examples made it clear that no Christian, no Christian would be able to run the Christian race successfully without exercising the same type of strict discipline training that they had seen the competitors in these races uh, exercise in Corinth. Notice he begins by saying, run in such a way to win. <laughs> Running, can I just tell you, does not guarantee winning. We all know that no one ever enters a race hoping to lose. We don't say, oh, yay, I get to lose. Uh, that's not the goal. Winning is. But running alone does not assure winning. Winning requires perseverance. It requires discipline. It requires training. And so does winning at the Christian life. I want you to note that winning is not second place. <laughs> I came across a quote this week, and I, didn't, I wasn't aware of this when I was studying for this message. I came across a story about the 1996 Summer Olympics. Apparently, Nike purchased a billboard in Atlanta in preparation for the Olympics. And it said, you don't win silver, you lose gold. That was fascinating to me. You don't win silver you lose gold. The advertisement <laughs> was extremely controversial because it implied that someone who wins a silver medal, which, come on, think about this, who is second best in the entire world is a loser. Unlike our Olympics today, which gives bronze, silver, and gold medals, in the ancient games, the one that Paul's talking about, there was only one winner. There was no second and third place. And can I tell you, there is no second place in the Christian walk. There's no runners up. There's no consolation prize. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, first is first and second is last. <coughs> or second place is the first loser. Paul says we need to run to win. Our aim needs to be winning, not just completing the race, but winning. We all know Vince Lombardi the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, and he became famous for saying, winning is not everything, it's the only thing. Paul is saying the same thing. We need to run in such a way as to win, because winning is not everything, it's the only thing. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, run, but only one receives the prize? Look at that wording. Do you not know that those who run in a race? My, my friend Karen signed up to run a race, uh, a marathon actually, in the Quad Cities. I think it was yesterday and the day before. And, and I, I know this is going to shock you, that even though she's my friend, I did not sign up to run that race. She was super duper over the top excited and I, however, have absolutely no interest in running a marathon. Anybody with me? So yeah, so clearly you will not find me in that race. And, but my question for you tonight is, have you signed up 
for the Christian race. Because before we go any further in this passage, we, we, have, to, we have to really uh, drive that point home. Because you may be here tonight and you might have no interest in running the Christian race. It might be like me in the marathon. I have no interest in running that race. And maybe you're sitting here tonight and you don't have any interest in running the Christian race. And this message isn't for you. Because you can't win a race unless you're in the race. You can't win a fight unless you're in the ring. So the first question I have to ask you is, are you in the race? How do you know you're in the race? You have to ask yourself, have you been born again? Are you a Christian? Have you genuinely, now hear me, genuinely received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You might say, well, Rhea, how do I do that? In John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus describes himself as a door. A door is the entrance point. It's the way in. You know that he calls his followers sheep, and sheep is just another metaphor like race, like fight, like door. And he's saying in this passage in John 10, I am the door, I'm the way into the sheepfold. You can't become one of his sheep unless you're willing to go through the door. That's how you get into the sheepfold. That's how you get into the race. That's how you get into the fight. You go through Jesus. John 14, 6 says, no one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except through me. No one. You're not the exception. No one comes to the Father except by going through him, the door. John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, as many as received him. You have to receive him as your Lord and Savior, and if that hasn't happened, you are not in the race. And the first thing you have to do is join the race. Sign up for the race. Sign up to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Let's return to our verse again. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? There's a prize we are running for, a goal we're striving for and agonizing over. That word prize, it means an award to the victor, but here's, here's what it really means. It's a metaphor for the, of the heavenly reward for Christian character. Hear me. It's, it's a metaphor for the heavenly reward for Christian character character. Oh, we're not talking, uh, it's, it's clear here that, that we're talking about rewards. Hear me, not salvation. Salvation is a free gift of grace. We cannot earn it. We can't be good enough for it. Salvation is what gets us into the race. Christian character is what gets us rewarded. I don't think we're worried about Christian character anymore. That's why the, the messages from the pulpit on Sunday morning are watered down. That's why we care more about tickling ears than we care about building disciples. And I'm telling you, we've got to get to a place where we are concerned about Christian character because we see in this passage that it's Christian character that gets rewarded. He says, do you not know that uh, those who run the race all run, but one receives the prize? That word no, it means to turn the eyes, uh, the mind, the attention to anything. It means to get knowledge, to understand. Oh, I, I like that. Do you not know? I, I want you to know this. I, I want you to wrap your arms around this. I want you to, to, to burn it into your brain that all one, but only one wins the prize. And, and because I know you, you've got to say, I'm running for a purpose. <coughs> a prize, and I'm aware that not everybody wins it. So I'm going to turn my mind, my attention to, to the way I'm running. The way you're running counts. He says, run in such a way to win. That word run is interesting. It means to run, uh, but, but it means to exert oneself, to, to strive hard, to spend one's strength. That, that requires effort. I don't know if you've ever run a marathon. I have not. But just running down the block, for me, requires effort. It requires, to, to, I have to strain and, and strive to get to the end of the block. It requires hard work. So does running the Christian walk. We, we race, we, we want an easy way out. There, there really isn't. Run in such a way so that you can uh, 
receive the prize. And that word receive means to lay hold of, to take as one's own. It means to apprehend. And that's going to require effort to lay hold, to strive to obtain Christian character. We don't just, this is what we want. We want God to zap us. God, can you just make me a better person? Can you, can you zap me and make me more patient? Can you? Uh, no. We strive for that. We, we work towards that. We, we, we persevere. We die to self. Then he says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. <laughs> Remember that word run means to exert oneself, to strive hard after, to spend all one's strength chasing after something. Spend all your strength striving after obtaining the prize. Here's what I want you to see there. That word, uh, obtain, it means a lot of things, but here's the definition that I love. In a good sense of Christ by his holy power and influence, laying hold of the human mind and will in order to prompt it and govern it. I'm going to read that to you again because there's so much there. In a good sense, this word obtain means of Christ by his holy power and influence, laying hold of the human mind and will in order to prompt it and govern it. Can I just tell you, I cannot run this race. You cannot run this race well unless we are allowing the Holy Spirit to lay hold of our minds, to influence it, to influence my will, to influence my emotions, to influence my mind and govern it. And prompt me to obedience. We have to allow him to lay hold of our mind. See, our minds, where the mind goes, Scripture says, the man will follow. Just ask an emotional woman, ask me. Because where my emotions go, I follow. I follow those emotions like a, like a, a blind person being guided. That's what I do. And he's saying in order to live a victorious Christian life, we've got to start minding this mind. We have to allow the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to lay hold of it and begin to govern it, begin to rule and reign over it. That's part of training for this race. So the next thing you have to do to train for this race, we see in verse 25 through 27, he says everyone who competes for a prize is temperate. Then he says in verse 26, don't run with uncertainty. They're certain. And then he says, fight. And then he says, discipline. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. That is all a part of the training program to get you race ready. My friend Karen, as I talked to her about this marathon she was running, she told me how she's been training over the course of the past year and that it was grueling that she was dedicated and committed. She said, I had to go run when I didn't want to run. She said, I had to run in the heat. I had to run in the rain. I had to run in the cold. I, it was grueling. But she wanted to be race ready. She did it even when she didn't feel like it. She knew that to win this race, she had to train. And she dedicated herself to it. She gave it all her time and energy. In fact, she dedicated herself to it and trained so hard that she injured her hip while training. Now, I'm telling you, that would have done it for me. If I ever got to a point where I was training, baby Rhea, if I'd injured my hip, I would have been like, here, where's the couch? Let me withdraw from that race. That, that's just what I would have done. And, but, but, but she was so excited about competing in this race, she's actually scheduled to have a hip replacement but beca because of her injury. But, but she running that race was so important to her that she intentionally scheduled surgery for after the race. I said, how are you going to do it? She said, I'm going to run through the pain. Are you running through pain? Or does it put you on the sidelines? Does it send you to the couch? Are you ready to withdraw from the race? When I saw her last, it was just Wednesday night, I saw her and I noticed how thin and fit she looked. And she doesn't have an ounce of fat on her. And it's because she doesn't eat junk. She abstains from the things I find pleasurable because she knows that it will interfere with the way she runs her race. She denies herself. I, I was talking to her last week, and, and, and because her hip was hurting, she was down on the ground talking to me, and I had to help her up, and, and I grabbed a hold of her arm, and her arm was this massive muscle. It was just as firm as when you're my age, you appreciate firm arms, but I was firm as, as could be, and, and I was amazed that it was such pure muscle, and, and it's because she's been training 
and people can see the effect of her training. Does she like training? No, it's not a lot of fun. But she learned to subdue her body, to, to, to make it train, because, because she had a goal in sight. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying you have to learn to subdue your body. You have to learn to train and to do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. You have to learn to take some things out of your life, out of your diet, so to speak, so that you can be fit and run well because you have a goal in sight. Some of us, we, we have trouble abstaining from saying the last word. We have trouble from, from snapping at somebody. We have, we have trouble from abstaining and, and from gossip. How in the world do we want to run a race? How do we expect to be spiritually fit if we can't even handle those little things? Look at verse 25. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That word competes, I just want to pronounce it to you in, in the, the Greek and see if you can identify what English word we get from it. So anyone who competes, this is about competing. Are you with me? It, it is the word in, in the Greek is agonizomai. Agonizomai. Agony. You betcha, that's where we get our word agony. That very Greek word is where we get our word agony. Paul is saying, by not even saying anything, he's just saying anybody that competes, anybody who agonizes, you don't even need to tell me anymore, Paul. You've already told me that this race, if I'm going to compete in it, it's going to cause me some agony. It's a metaphor for contending and struggling with difficulties and danger. It is to endeavor with zeal. To put forth every effort, and it involves toil. It's agony. It requires effort. It requires straining and striving. He says, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That word temperate means to be self-controlled. <laughs> to exhibit self-government. It literally means to have power over oneself. How many of us want to learn to have power over ourselves? To subdue that flesh. He says they're temperate in all things. I want you to, if you're writing your Bible, circle that all things. Because all means all. It, it doesn't just mean when you feel like it. You're temperate when you feel like it. <laughs> or when things are going your way. It, no, you're temperate in all things. And it means individually of every kind. It means the whole. That means you and I don't have the one exception that gives us an excuse not to be self-controlled or temperate. It's not the spouse we live with or the person we work with at work that gives us the excuse to not be self-controlled. It's all. We're, we're temperate in all things. Verse 26, therefore, I run thus not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air. So many good things in this, but, but let me just briefly go over it with you. He says, therefore, I don't run with uncertainty. It means I don't spend my strength and strive with uncertainty. I have a goal in sight, and that goal is Christ-likeness. Can I just tell you? It's Christ-likeness. And then suddenly, in verse 26, he seems to change the metaphor. He goes from talking about a race to now he's talking about a fight. He says, thus I fight. And that word fight in the original language, it doesn't mean fight. It means to box or be a boxer. He's now drawing on the athletic metaphor of a boxer. And, and he says, I don't fight or I don't box as one who beats the air. That word beats means to thrash or to smite. I'm not just punching the air. I'm not randomly, you know, I'm not taking a swing at somebody and missing. I'm not punching the air. He said, I'm strategic in my punches. I'm strategic at what I'm beating at. It's a picture of aimlessly spending our strength on stuff that doesn't matter. I don't beat the air. I don't aimlessly spend my strength. I have a goal in the sight. Can I just tell you? There is, this is a real fight, and we have a real opponent. And Paul is making it clear that the opponent is, is not some external foe. I, I know this is going to surprise you, but in this passage, now we do have an external foe. We do have an enemy of our soul. But in this passage, Paul is not talking about an external foe. He's talking about an inward opponent. My inward, my, my evil desires, my flesh 
That's my opponent, the one that Paul is talking about. And he says, I'm not shadow boxing. I have an opponent. It's a real fight. And I'm not going to spend all my strength in the wrong areas. We spend so much of our strength fighting a battle we were not created for. Paul was saying the Christian life, we need to run with self-denial and agonizing effort. We can't afford to run with uncertainty. We need a goal in sight. Verse 27, he says, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. In order to obtain that goal, I need to discipline myself. See, some of us want to be in the race, but we can't even discipline ourselves to get up in the morning and study the Word of God. Some of us want to be in the race, but we can't discipline ourselves to spend time in prayer or go to church on Sunday morning. We can't discipline ourselves to say no to fleshly indulgences or sensual desires, but we want to run the race well. The word discipline is so interesting here. Don't miss this. And keep in mind that boxing match. The word discipline, I'm going to read it directly out of the Greek dictionary. It means to beat black and blue to smite or to cause bruises. Like a boxer, one buffets his body, handles it roughly, disciplines by hardships. It's a metaphor to give one intolerable annoyance, to beat one out, to wear one out. But here's my very favorite part of the definition. It's the Greek word, uh, hupazio, and, and it comes from two words. It's a compound word, hupo, which means under, and ops, which means I. The definition says that part of the face that's under the eye. Are you with me? Boxing, are you with me? Precept Austin says it means literally to strike under the eye, a description of an uppercut. To strike in this manner was generally considered to be a knockout punch by the ancient Greek boxers. So when Paul used this illustration, his readers would have understood what he was talking about. The idea is to strike hard and heavy on one's face, rendering it black and blue, to give your flesh a knockout punch. Boxers in that time wore gloves made of leather bands tied into knots, and they were embedded with metallic objects at the knuckles. Metallic objects composed of lead and iron. They're similar to our brass knuckles that we have today. So I want you to picture a boxing match. And imagine for a moment that you're in the ring with another boxer. You're fighting an opponent. And unbeknownst to you, your opponent has brass knuckles embedded in his gloves. And the bell sounds for the next round. And for a moment, you hesitate and you let down your guard and bam! Your opponent gives you the knockout punch. Knocked out by the brass knuckles, pummeled by the opponent. That is the picture that Paul's drawing here. It's exactly what happens when we let down our guard in the fight against the flesh. The knockout punch comes and we are easily taken out. Instead, Paul says, we need to start giving our flesh the knockout punch. Uh, Don, do you have those pictures ready, ready for me? Um, or is it Lynn that's behind it? Uh, have you ever seen the bronze statue called the boxer at rest? That's what it is the boxer at rest. And, and can you put the gloves up for me? Look at those gloves. Look how they're made. They're, this would have been in the time that Paul was writing. They, they were fur-lined. They were tightly secured around the forearm. And notice the brass knuckles. See that brass knuckle-like object that's on the, the, um, the front of the glove there? Those are deadly weapons, can I just tell you? <laughs> and they're war by strong and a strong and powerful opponent. Can you imagine how anyone would withstand blows from those? Let me see the head of the statue. Now here's the head. I want you to notice the ears. You can't really see it there. Maybe in the next picture. They're kind of flattened. The ears and the nose. Look at the wounds and the received from the blows. Scars all over the place there. When Paul uses the word that means beat your, beat your body black and blue, he, he's not actually referring to a physical body, but that's a beating. But he's not referring to your physical body. He's talking about your flesh. Beat your flesh black and blue. Beat it down. Give it the knockout punch. 
do you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about the flesh? Are, do we all know that? I'm not talking about a body. I'm talking uh, about, about your uh, fleshly desires, your lusts, your, your, your um, passions. What else? Your carnality, David's saying. Yeah. <laughs> so we all understand flesh. So he's not talking about beating and bruising your actual body, but rather self-denial. Denying yourself in order to keep yourself spiritually fit. You see, we can't afford to sit back on our laurels because that's when the knockout punch comes. That's when those, those metal knuckles take us down. And there is, this is a fight. We are in a fight. Over and over we see it in Scripture that it's called the fight. Fight the good fight of faith. And we have to fight uh, to the knockout like, to, like a boxer does in a boxing match. But remember, this is not done in our own strength. One commentator said, resisting temptation in our own strength is just another form of legalism. When Paul is talking about denying self, he's not talking about doing it in your own strength. He's talking about spirit-enabled self-denial. And yes, you and I must make the decision, and it has to come from us, to deny the strong desires that continually come from our fallen flesh. It's our responsibility. But can I promise you that God will give you the want to and the power? We're studying on Friday mornings in Philippians, and my, the Friday morning people will tell you that, that we love Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the thing. You're working out your salvation, your deliverance. We work out our deliverance by following God's word. We get delivered. We get delivered from anger. We get delivered from bitterness. We get delivered from hatred. We get delivered from selfish attitudes. We get delivered from me by working out our salvation, by working out our deliverance. With fear and trembling, we work it out. We work out our deliverance. But it is God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He's the one that gives us the will to do it. He's the one that gives us the power to do it. He just, we cooperate with his spirit. Do you see it? God, I hate this thing in my life, but you say that you that I can work out my salvation, I can work out my deliverance through obeying you, and that you will give me the will to want to change, and you'll give me the power to be able to do it. It is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure, but we cooperate with the Spirit. Turn over to Romans 8.13. Romans 8.13. For if you live, oh, this is so good. If you live according to the flesh, what's going to happen? You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how am I going to deny my flesh? How am I going to put it to death? How am I going to crucify it? By the Spirit. Look at that. If you live according to the flesh, letting flesh dictate, letting my selfishness rule, letting my, my unhealthy desires, my, my unhealthy emotions rule, you will die. And that's not a physical death. It's saying, you're me miserable. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Don't miss the balance here. It's us cooperating with the Spirit. There's God's part. If by the Spirit, and then there's our part. You put to death. Without God, without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. He waits for the cooperation with the Spirit. Do you see that? The next step is we have to persevere in the race. You see, the Christian walk, the Christian walk is like a marathon. It's not a sprint. <laughs> the Isthmian games, the boxers box sometimes for four hours, persevering until one competitor was knocked out. They just kept going. To persevere that long takes training and discipline. And it's interesting to me that that word that Paul uses for discipline that we talked about is in the present tense. You say, well, yeah, what's all this tense stuff? It's vital. 
Because when he says that, that I discipline myself, it means that it's his lifestyle. He has a lifestyle of disciplining himself and denying himself. That it's his continual practice. It's not a one and done thing. I denied myself today. I don't have to do it tomorrow. It's a minute by minute continual lifestyle. There it is again. There's that ugly flesh. I've told you many times that my biological father was a mortician. And thank goodness I didn't live with him because his, his mortuary was in the basement of their house. And he would tell stories about how when he was working on a dead body, all of a sudden an arm would fly up. Now, if that happened to you, would you not bolt out of there? I'd be like, I am out of here. I'm not sleeping here. Uh, but, but it didn't bother him because he understood that it was dead flesh. And so he would just knock that thing right back down on the table and continue on with, with preparing the dead body. And, and so I, I'm just telling you that that's what our flesh is like. It is a constant battle of my dead flesh. Yes, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me, but that dead flesh wants some attention. And it, it, it flies up every once in a while in my life and I have to smack that thing back down and say, not today, not today. We're not going there today. I am disciplining myself not to give that power in my life. Paul was saying it's a constant battle and that he's in constant battle with it in order to run well. He couldn't afford to let up. He understood as long as he was in the race, he had to battle that flesh. Turn over to 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 2.11. It says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. What is your soul? Your mind, your will, your emotions. Can I tell you, sinful desires war against my mind, my will, my, desire, my emotions. The NLT says, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter uses the present tense here as well. He's saying these sinful desires, these fleshly lusts continually are waging war against our soul. I had two older brothers, and, and they picked on me constantly. And, and, and they, would, they, they loved to play this game called Uncle. How, how, are you familiar with it? They, they would take my fingers in theirs, and they would bend my arms back as far as they possibly could go and, and just torture me. And, and, and it would just inflict so much pain on me, and, and I would endure it as long as I possibly could because I didn't want them to win. But, but inevitably, I would start crying, and they'd say, say, uncle. And I would scream, uncle. And they would walk away feeling like they got the victory, and it ticked me off every single time. And I'm telling you, that our flesh wants us to cry uncle. And it comes and it puts so much pressure on us and it tries to pressure us, pressure us, pressure us into doing what it wants us to do. And it waits for us to cry uncle and say, I give in. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll give in to that temptation. I'll give in to, to that desire and I'll do it. And yet we don't realize it's God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living within us. And we have the power to say no to ungodliness. We have the power to say no to that. But we have to make the choice to deny that flesh. Don't expect a truce. It's a war. I looked up that word truce today. And it, it's a short interruption in a war. It means to stop fighting or arguing for a period of time. Don't expect a truce with the enemy of your soul. And don't expect a truce with the flesh. Because they want to win. The enemy says, be alert and have a sober mind because your, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone whom he might devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. You see, we have an opponent, an adversary. Not only do we have our flesh, but that adversary is trying to beat us down and overcome us every single day, and so is our flesh. And we need to learn to be spirit-driven and not emotion-driven uh, or feeling-driven. That's the big one for me. I don't feel like being nice. Really? Because you are not feeling driven. You're a Christian and you are spirit driven. And we've got to decide that we will not allow our feelings to govern our life. We will not allow, we are governed by the spirit and not by the flesh because we understand that when we give in to the flesh it leads to what? 
death. And when we walk according to the Spirit, it leads to life. If you're miserable here tonight, I promise you, there is a place in your life that you are giving in to the flesh and allowing it to govern you because it's leading you right into a place of death and defeat. That's why the Bible says, submit, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. We must learn to submit our fleshly desires to God, to obey him over them. We have to learn to submit our feelings, our will, our desires, our thoughts. Some of you need to learn to submit your thoughts to God. And in doing so, you automatically resist the devil. You resist his temptation. You resist his lies. You resist his temptation. And the Bible says when we submit to God and his ways and we resist the devil, he has to flee. He has to flee. If we want to look more like Jesus, we can't afford to cry uncle with our flesh. Boxing was a serious and brutal competition. Paul chose this um, metaphor for a reason. He was making it clear that the Christian life could be as well. It's a war. And we can't go to the war unprepared. Our fleshly desires will continue to wage war against our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions. But we have to choose to give it a knockout punch. One last thing I want to talk to you about the word for discipline. How many of you know the story of the persistent widow in, in Luke 18, uh, verses 2 through 5? You know, where she, she goes and she's continually knocking at the judge's door and he doesn't want to answer. And she, she just keeps going back and keeps knocking and knocking and knocking. And, and he says, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come back and attack me. That word attack, guess what it is? Discipline. The same word that's, that's used in 1 Corinthians 9 for discipline. And it's a picture. That widow was relentless in hounding the judge, beating him down, constantly hoping to wear down his resolve. And Paul is saying that's how we have to be with the flesh. We have to be relentless. We have to beat that thing down day in and day out. We have to hound it and say, you are not getting any place in my life. I have a goal, and it's to be Christ-like, and nothing is interfering with that goal. That is the goal I'm running towards. Ultimately, that goal is eternal life, is it not? And here's what people don't understand, is we think eternal life, Meg, we think eternal life is getting to heaven. That is so wrong. It's such a deception. We have deceived people in believing that, that I have to wait to get to heaven to have eternal life. Eternal life means it begins now and it continues throughout eternity. The day I came to Christ, I got eternal life. And so I am without excuse. Everything I need for life is in me. It is my choice what I bow to. And the Bible says, or Paul was saying here, run in such a way to win the prize. That prize is eternal life. That prize is when I run with Christ-likeness, denying the flesh, keeping it pushed down in, crucifying myself. I'm telling you, the, the prize is life. It is life. I don't care. You go out and party every night if you want. You go get drunk as a skunk. You go have sex outside of marriage. You go do whatever you want that you think brings you life. I promise you. I promise you. That will only lead to death. It might give temporary happiness, but God's word and its truth says the only way to life is his way. Is his way. And I'm going to stay on that path, and I'm going to run that race well. And if that means I have to keep this flesh down, I'm going to beat that thing. I'm going to beat it. I hate it. Can I tell you how much I hate when it rears its ugly face? I hate it. But it's a choice. We have to give it the knockout punch. God is not going to do it for us. We choose it. Verse 7, 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Notice he says my body. Uh, so much of our battle isn't even, isn't even with the devil. Most of our temptation to sin comes from within our body, our flesh. And he says, I bring it into subjection. This is so cool. It means to lead away into slavery. It means to claim it as one slave. Uh, it means to bring it into bondage. It comes from two words, doulos. Where are my Friday morning people? What is doulos? Slave. And ago, which means to lead. 
and combined, they mean to lead that thing by a leash or a rope into slavery. To lead it around like a slave. And that's what we're to do with our fleshly impulses. That's what you're to do with your anger. Just lead it around like a slave. Make it work for you. You are not getting any freedom here. You're in bondage right now. You can't come out. These insecurities that I'm constantly dealing with in bondage right now, I'm leading it away like a slave, putting it in prison. It has no place in my mind. That, that, that jealousy that I, that, that I deal with, I'm leading it like a slave into bondage. It has no place in my life. That, that bitterness and that anger, that unforgiveness, that, that I are in disobedience to God's word and trying to rear its ugly head in my life. You know what? Wrapping a rope around its neck and leading it away like a slave. It has no business in my life it's in bondage that's the picture that's the picture I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection lest when I preach to others Jesus I myself should become disqualified Paul understood that his fleshly desires left to run rampant in his life could meet could be the means to disqualify him and his ministry. Barnhouse has a paraphrase that spoke deeply to my heart. And I, I want to read that to you. If you miss everything else, I'm closing. If you miss everything else, don't miss this one. He says, I keep my body in complete subjection to my spirit. If I don't do this, I'm likely to be counted as one who did a lot of talking, but finished up with the crowd, far from the prize winners. Matthew 7, 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, do you understand that scripture? Uh, enter through the narrow gate. Can I tell you, God's word is pretty narrow. God's way is pretty narrow. Enter in through the, the narrow gate. And, and, and then he says, um, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. There's a lot of room on that one. There, there's a lot of room for playing around. There's a lot of room for, for doing things you should not ought to be doing. And everybody's on it. Wide is that road. Everybody's following it. But the narrow one is the one nobody wants to be on. That word narrow actually means, uh, help me, Leah, it weeds, isn't it? The weeded area that, that, that isn't trampled down yet because nobody's on it. Nobody wants to live that kind of life. But that's the one that leads to life. But broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many find it. Yes, many find it. And, and so uh, he says, I don't want to be one who did a lot of talking but ended up finishing with the crowd. The many or the crowd is the one that are on the broad road that leads to destruction. I don't want to finish up with the crowd. That word disqualified is, is really interesting. It means not standing the test, not approved. It means that which does not prove itself as it ought to be, worthless. It means unfit for, it means a reprobate. In the ancient times, uh, in the, in, uh, there wasn't a banking system, and so they, they didn't have paper money, and all their money was made from metal, and, and they heated it into liquid, and they poured it into mold, and they allowed it to cool, and then the, when the coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth them down, so they would smooth down the uneven edges. And so the, the, the coins were soft, and, and so many people shaved them really closely, and, and, and so there were some money changers who were men of integrity. And they would not, they thought that was counterfeit money because it didn't weigh the same amount of money. It was shaved down. And so it was counterfeit money. And, and, and so they wouldn't accept that money. And they would only put genuine full weight money into circulation. They were called docomos. This word, disqualified, is adocomos. So when you put an A in front of anything, it makes it a negative. So adokamos means not genuine or counterfeit. Can I tell you, the reason more people don't want our Jesus is because we look the part, we, we pretend the part, but we are not genuine. We are counterfeit. 
and we're putting ourselves in circulation as Christians that are going to be identified as a counterfeit. And Paul says, uh uh, I'm taking this stuff seriously, and I am disciplining my body. And I am learning to deny self. And I am subduing my flesh. Because after I have preached Christ to all of you, I don't want to be identified by God who knows what's in a man as a counterfeit. Oh, Jesus. I'm telling you, there are people who say, well, Rhea, I leave your Bible study convicted. Good. Condemned and convicted are two different things. When you get up under the word, it should convict you because conviction is what brings change. And I am not in the business. I don't need to preach one more place. I got My schedule is busy. It is full. And I don't need another place to preach. What I need is disciples, people who want to follow, to hear the word. I need to hear the word. I need to preach the word. I am not messing around because we got enough pulpits full of people messing around, tickling ears, and people are not changing and they are going to be revealed one day as counterfeits, as not genuine. And those are not disciples I'm making. I am not making those kind of disciples. So Paul says, I don't want to preach to you and then be disqualified. In the next chapter, chapter 10, Paul warns them. He says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And now Paul is applying that to himself. He said, if I don't give heed, if I give way to fleshly desires, I could find myself on the slippery slope of disobedience and away from Christ and get to the end of my life and hear the judge of the race say, disqualified. Jesus said, and you know this, I preach this all the time, that in that day, in the day that we stand before him, many, not a few, many will say, Lord, Lord. They're calling him Lord. They, they believe he is. They're, they're, they're professing he's Lord. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform miraculous signs and wonders in your name? And he said, and I will say to them, away from me. I never knew you. We never had intimacy. We, We never had deep connection. I never knew you. That's why Paul, the writer of this letter, later he says um, in in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you're disqualified? That word is the exact same word from 1 Corinthians 9.27. Alan Jackson, uh, the, the IVP commentary says this. This can be better translated, I'm afraid I won't stand the test. Paul expresses the irony that without strict discipline, when all is said and done, the secrets of his heart are brought into light, to the light of God's judgment, that he himself, the teacher, might fail the test of complete faithfulness to Christ. So in conclusion, I don't know about you, but I like the easy way out. I really do. Um, my friend Barb got me a, an air fryer this week, and, and I'm excited to use it because it only takes a few minutes to make dinner. <laughs> I like the easy way out. Um, and so in this passage, Paul is stressing to the Corinthians and to us that no man will ever make progress or get anywhere without strict discipline in their lives. And he draws the picture of, of this athletic games and his writing and and Barclay says it's probably because he knew an athlete must train with intensity if he's to win the contest and furthermore the athlete the athlete undergoes self-discipline and training to win a crown of laurel leaves that within days will be wilted how much more should the Christian discipline himself to win the crown which is eternal life to win the fight and be victorious demands discipline. We have to discipline our bodies. We have to subdue that flesh. And that's one of the neglected facts about the spiritual life. Romans 8.13 says, For if I live according to the dictates of the flesh, I will surely die. 
But if through the power of the Holy Spirit I am habitually putting to death, making extinct, deadening the evil deeds prompted by the body, then I shall really and genuinely live. We have to choose. We cooperate with God. If by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. We want the rewards without paying the price. There's so much that I want to say, but we, we want the rewards without paying the price. Can I just tell you, I put on so much weight in the past year, it makes me sick. I hate it. I'm getting flabby, nothing fits, and, and it's simply because I've gotten lazy. I don't want to discipline myself to eat right. I, I don't want to discipline myself to exercise, and, and I don't have the energy to exercise. I don't want to put the effort out, and yet that's what it's going to take for me to become fit again. And here's the reality is I've let myself go so long that now it's going to be agonizing for me to start an exercise program and to get physically fit. And, and it's going to take even more energy and even more effort. It's going to take commitment and dedication on my part. And quite frankly, when I'm sitting on the couch at night with Dave, I'm, not, I'm thinking it's probably not worth it. That's way too much work. And I have to decide, do I want it badly enough? Am I sick enough of where I'm at physically to require to put in the effort and the work and the discipline to do it? I tell you that story because it's the same spiritually. When you get sick enough of where you are and how out of shape we are spiritually, we will put in the effort to do it. But like me, it will require effort. It will require discipline. It will require training. It will require dedication and commitment. And just like the competitors in those Ismithian games, they're, they're, they could not take any shortcuts to physical fitness. And there are no shortcuts for us spiritually. We have to decide if we want it badly enough. Like a quarry, the, the gentleman who I, I spoke of in the beginning of the sermon who was sent not to run the race but to finish it, you and I have been sent not just to run a race but run in such a way to win it, to finish it. And that race won't be over till we stand in his presence and, and we are now glorified. You, you've heard me talk about the tenses of salvation uh, before. But let me just go over them with you one more time. We are justified. When we come to Christ, we're saved by grace through faith so that no man can boast. We are justified um, by, by Christ through faith. It's just as if we've never sinned. When God looks down at us, when he sees, when he sees Dave, he doesn't see Dave's sin. He sees the blood of Jesus over him. It's just as if he's never sinned. Dave can do nothing to earn that. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift of God. But now, because we've been justified, it's just as if we've never sinned. We, we don't stop there. We could, I guess, but we don't. And, and the, we, we now, uh, I, the three tenses of salvation is... I, I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Do you see that? Justification, sanctification, glorification. Are you with me? Am I losing you? So now Dave's been justified by faith. Can't work at it. That's a gift. That same grace that saved him now enables him. It is God who works in me to will and to do his good, good pleasure, okay? Sanctification, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure, okay? So sanctification is me working out my salvation. I'm becoming more like Jesus every single day. I'm being sanctified, set apart, uh, looking made holy. As I walk out, I'm being saved. Well, how can I be saved if I already was saved? Because I'm saved by faith, by grace through faith, justified. Now I'm sanctified. I'm being saved. I'm looking more like him. But when I finish this race and I stand before him, I will be glorified. I, I, I'm not just, I was saved from the uh, power, uh, help me, power of sin. The presence of sin. The presence of sin. No, mm, that's the end. The penalty of sin. Thank you, Leah. I'm saved by the penalty of sin, justified. And now I'm saved by, from the, the power of sin, 
No, we got it backwards. Yes, penalty, power, and presence. And when I stand in front of Jesus, I'm going to be saved from the presence of sin. It's not going to dog me anymore. I won't have to subdue it. I, I will be free. Do, do you see? Oh, it's so good. But now we're working on our salvation. And part of that is learning to subdue that flesh. We're going to pick up again next week. We're going to talk some more about dying to self. We're going to... Good. Are you, are you getting blessed or is it way too much? Is it? Yeah. It's a lot, can I tell you? But you have to know my heart. And, and anybody that knows me close will tell you this. My heart is never to condemn people. We are in this race together. Dave gave this best illustration on Sunday. Wasn't it a good illustration? What, what did you call it? The shield things? A phalanx. I loved it. And, and it is locking shields together, uh, and then they locked them over their heads so that whatever the enemy threw at them wasn't getting in because they were so linked together. They were so unified. Their shields were locked together. They, they were safe. And I am locking shields with you. That's what this is about. It is not to leave you condemned. I understand we have an enemy, and he is firing at us every single day. And, and I am here to, to strengthen you in the word and to, to get us strong together, to walk this out together. It is never to condemn. It's always to liberate. But we cannot, if, if, unless we're looking at this stuff, we will never walk in liberty and true victory. We have to choose to look at this stuff, not to be condemned in it, but to be renewed and transformed by it. Big difference. So, Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. I thank you, Lord God, for your word. It's so powerful. So powerful, Lord. Thank you that you gave us your word. And, Father, I pray for continued revelation about this passage. I, I pray that you'd burn it into our hearts and our minds. Lord, that it would be with us throughout this week, Lord God, that we would continually keep that knockout punch in front of us, Lord God, that, that we would keep, that, that the memory of what we studied here tonight would be burned deeply within us and that it would motivate us, that it would transform us. And Lord God, that we truly would begin to work and walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. We love you, Lord. And we give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name.